Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. People want to ask me, they all want to believe that, that Barnabas is pattern after my life. I had a much better uh, start in life than Barnabas did. But nevertheless, by the time I was in law school, I had no faith. And so a lot of the words and the arguments that Barnabas is making, particularly in his interaction with Stephanie, are the arguments that I made. That was Daryl Dunham, a law professor in Southern Illinois, and now the author of a recently released book that is causing a popular stir in Christian and literary circles. It's a triumphant and a must-read book, and my full interview with Daryl is coming up in this episode. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Daryl Dunham's book, The Oak, is a compelling journey of faith, love, forgiveness, and redemption. Sales are climbing fast, the reviews are glowing, and so is talk of a possible movie deal. I've had people, uh, one person in particular, that would said that he would like to do that. Text and whatever. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Well, it's just grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Before we get to my interview with the author, Daryl Donham, I just want to share our excitement about Hallmark's Jen Lilly, We interviewed Jen on our podcast recently about Jen's amazing work in foster care. Jen has just released her music video featuring hundreds of her fans after she raised $50,000 to help foster kids. The video has her song, On the Street Where You Live. Check it out on YouTube and also go to my YouTube channel. Life on Planet Earth. My guest, Daryl Dunham, practices law in Carbondale, Southern Illinois. He and his wife, Betsy, have five children and eight grandchildren. He wrote the Oak, he says, because he believes there should be more Christian literature written for the benefit of young adults looking for encouragement in their faith journey. The Oak tells the story of Barnabas Mitchell and his early struggles and faith journey, and it brings us inside the high-stakes world of law, money, and personal control. Daryl Dunham, for many years, was a law professor at SIU in Carbondale, Southern Illinois. I asked him what inspired him to write The Oak. I tell people my life story in a nutshell is that I was married for five years, got divorced. During that year I was uh, divorced, I became a Christian, wound up remarrying the same woman. And then we've had a very successful marriage since then. But it forced me 
that year to um I, w- I had my midlife crisis early. I had to make some decisions about what kind of person I was going to be, and I was forced to actually uh, do some hard thinking about marriage, uh, the marriage relationship, the family unit, and I became convinced that uh, marriage and family is an institution created by God. And I now have grandchildren that are starting to approach their teenage years, and I thought it would be fun to write a book put it in fiction form that my uh, grandchildren might be interested in reading where I could transmit those values uh, to them. And as it turns out in the process, I think others have felt blessed by the book. Well, without spoiling the plot or the story for listeners, we'll get into the book a little bit here. There are, I suppose, three main characters. There's Barnabas Mitchell on one side, then there's Bill Cushman, who entered his life on the other. He's described as tall, a good-looking, athletic type from an influential family, a bit of a dark horse, and he has a major bearing on Barnabas Mitchell, who, quote-unquote, is from the other side of the tracks, had a tough life and had lost his faith in God and in people as a young man. Then enters Stephanie Schultz, who Barnabas met while attending law school. Can you just pick it up from there? Yeah, Barnabas is a guy that um, uh, he was raised by a very devout mother, and that's obvious. She was clearly a praying lady, but when Barnabas was age 12, uh, kind of the Titanic went down, and his mother went got into a major accident and um, it had a huge effect on her health and she just kind of steadily declined so that by the time that Barnabas was able to graduate from college he was went to college on an athletic scholarship uh, you know she passed away and uh, it was a you know a time of great depression for him but she did instill in him values and uh, so that's kind of what his meaning of life was, was to uh, give honor to his mother. Well, in high school, he meets this guy, Bill Cushman. And Bill is uh, very rich. Dad's uh, very uh, influential and will constantly intervene in Bill's life whenever Bill uh, gets into some scrapes, for which he should be held accountable, uh, you know, cheating and things like that. But he's never been required to do that because his dad's always bailing him out and so bill has got this very strong sense of entitlement uh, and uh, i tell people and people who read the book we've all run into bill in one shape form or another bill is probably kind of an extreme uh, case of it uh, you know a sense of you know the rules are for little people the rules don't apply to me and so bill uh, and barnabas uh Particularly Barnabas develops a pretty intense dislike for Bill, and he just Bill just keeps cropping up, cropping up. Uh, Barnabas just can't get rid of him. And uh, as the book goes on, um, the crisis, the antipathy, uh, you know, deepens and deepens. Stephanie comes along just about the right time. Uh, he meets Stephanie in law school. Uh, Stephanie is uh, she hasn't had a perfect childhood. But she knows that she has um, been blessed. She's got uh, believing parents, a very strong nuclear family. She's developed her own faith. And there is uh, 
uh, almost immediately there is an attraction that the two have for one another. But she's got a deep faith in it. By law school, Barnabas doesn't. And uh, she makes it very clear to Barnabas that she's not going to be married, yoked to somebody that doesn't share her faith. And so, hence, one of the reasons for the title of the book, The Yoke. And so the the tension between the two of them, who are really pretty good friends, but that's Stephanie's made it very clear that's all that it's going to be, uh, is... Uh, Pretty interesting, I think, for at least some people. Any of these characters drawn from real life and fictionalized? People want to ask me. They all want to believe that that Barnabas is patterned after my life. I had a much better uh, start in life than Barnabas did. But nevertheless, by the time I was in law school, I had no faith. And so a lot of the words and the arguments that Barnabas is making, particularly in his interaction with Stephanie, are the arguments that I made. I have the uh, mindset and the arguments of the skeptics and non-believers' point of view. I think I understand those pretty well. And Barnabas is making a lot of those arguments and so that's uh, a lot of a lot of the words that are in Barnabas's mouth uh, come out of Barnabas's lips. They're the same arguments, the same words that I made in a prior life. And there are a lot of events that have occurred that are in the book that are real life events. Well, you went back to your faith later in life, so there is that similarity. I didn't have the strong faith. Uh, well, Barnabas was just a kid. I wasn't a well-churched person when I was young. I think Barnabas had a, at age 12, to the extent that you can have a faith at age 12, he was probably, he was better grounded than I was. I did have a kind of a form of belief uh, when I was younger, but not to the extent that I would say that, you know, Barnabas did at age 12. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? You were in academia for some years. Yes. I uh, tell people that uh, when I was in, uh, in the eighth grade, I still remember this vividly. The teacher went around the room and said, you know, what are you going to be when you get older? And I said I was going to be a lawyer. And there was spontaneous applause from my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> at age 13, and I went on to law school, and I, unlike a lot of my uh, friends in law school, I loved law school. Uh, I was about the only one that really enjoyed it, and I decided I was going to become a law professor, which I did, uh, and I was a law professor for uh, 24 years, and then I retired, and I decided to uh, go into practice. So I've been a practice, kind of a solo practitioner since about 2003. Let's talk again back to the book a little bit. What's the writing process like, revising and picking it up? Is it a slog? Does it come easy naturally? For me, I would say yes and no. Um, I wrote the book more as a, it was kind of like a hobby. I didn't. I really didn't think I was going to have anybody read it, maybe other than my grandchildren and other members of my family or close friends. And, had a client come along and read it, and he just absolutely insisted. They just forced me to, you know, get it out there and get it published. Uh, but for me, I tell people the closest thing that human activity that any individual can do that is close uh, to being a god is write a fiction novel. 
because you can create characters and you can mm-hmm. kill them off and you can mm-hmm. create situations and you can put language in them and you know you're god but what i also found about it which was very interesting was uh this phrase out of character it took on a new meaning for me because there's certain you know the character takes on a life of their own and you cannot put words in stephanie's mouth or have her do things that are out of character. I mean, it, it's interesting. It would just do violence to uh, her nature and her character to have her do things. And the same thing with Barnabas and also to some extent with Bill and the others. And so what I would do is I'd write the thing, and it's, the early drafts were really not very good at all. And I would get some, uh, have other people read it, and i revise it. And, and sometimes it would just sit there for two or three months, and I would do nothing, and then... I would get back to it and revise it. and So the whole process took about five years. Now, the book could be read as Christian literature on one level, and another, it's a thumping good read. Have you thought about spinning it off for a mass market? Yeah, at the start, I didn't think that there would be much of a market for that, but I've had people that are friends that don't share my beliefs that did very much enjoy reading the book. And I guess the reason for that is it's not a preachy book. It's it's not like you're having to go into some fundamentalist church on a Sunday morning and preach to. It's, it's not fire and brimstone where you start shaking no. and trembling at the knees. No, it's a, more of a soft sell than that. But uh, And there's a lot of mystery to it. Uh, there's a lot of nuances in the plot. And twists. Yeah, people don't. I think the reader is uh, frequently they're surprised at how things go and what events occur and what kind of uh, dilemmas that Barnabas finds himself in and how he wants it, winds up solving them. If if you're somebody that is interested in how the practice of law works in terms of uh, small town uh, solo practitioner. Uh, a lot of what Barnabas is thinking and doing and why he's making the decisions he makes are, you know, those are real-life scenarios. I've had law friends that have read the book do applaud it for its accuracy in terms of how life really is. I was intrigued by all the characters. And when Bill Cushman went to work for this white shoe law firm, and then Barnabas shows up for an interview later on. And we don't want to spoil the plot or the story. People just have to pick up the book. But um, I was, I won't say I was surprised, but uh, I did have to pause at the level of opulence at that law firm, and the lush carpets and expense accounts, money, no object. Is that the real world? I don't know about that. That's probably unfair because uh could be. And that that is perhaps a caricature. I have never worked for a big firm. Obviously, I've uh, been in big firms and done depositions there and, and the like. And I think with regard to big law, uh, it's like anything else. I think some firms are uh, are better to work for than others. And so I wanted that firm to be kind of a caricature of what it might be for well-moneyed clients and perhaps uh, a group of lawyers uh, at the top of their game that perhaps had lost perspective about the meaning of life. And our moral compass. 
Yeah, and yeah, moral compass and gotten into the materialism of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're not trying to disparage your colleagues or whatever. And there's a bit of a John Grisham feel about it too. Has anybody said that to you? I think that Gresham's books are, uh, I mean, obviously he's the guy that's at the top of his game and uh, writes uh, just, uh, you know, he just writes beautifully. I don't think anybody uh, could read my book. My book and his books, you know that my style and what's going on in my brain my voice is a completely different voice than his. Mm-hmm. It was a terrific read, and my wife picked it up too, and she couldn't put it down. So two fans here in um, the New York area. So what is it like, Daryl? You're a Christian, a practicing Christian, and you're an attorney. Is that unique? or is that? And, of course, you live in southern Illinois. What's, uh, what does that mean to you? You know, some people think that a Christian attorney, that's an oxymoron. But there's a lot of people I run into in the legal field that are believers. I, uh, when I first uh, started doing solo practice uh, after I left the law school, I said I was not going to do criminal law and I wasn't going to do divorce divorce work because it's just you know too messy and didn't want to do it. And what I found out is those are the people that you can witness to. Um, there's a reason why I think the New Testament talks about, um, you know, visiting people in the jail. I used to think, well, that might be because there were so many Christians in jail. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that uh, people uh, in our culture, it's so easy for them to come up with reasons and rationalizations as to why they don't want to be thinking about deeper faith issues. Well, people that are in the middle of a crisis, you know, in the book, divorce or particularly if they're looking at a criminal prosecution. You can ask them questions about how do they get into those circumstances and what life choices did they make and is this how they want to live the rest of their life and you can uh, make uh, greater progress I think with those kinds of people and I think perhaps lawyers are more tempted to um, abandon their faith, uh, you know, to be, uh, I don't say abandoned, but maybe they have more uh, tough choices to make in terms of whether they're going to be true to their faith or not. But what I have found in the legal profession as a matter of practicality, you do not want to get the reputation as being somebody that is dishonest, that you can't rely on their word, because it's very difficult to practice law where everything has got to be in writing and be confirmed and you can't rely on what somebody says over the phone. And so uh, at least in dealing with honor, uh, with lawyers, uh, other lawyers, there's an awful lot of honesty that uh, most lawyers you can talk to and what they tell you, you can rely on. That's what's going to happen. And then you, one of your things as an attorney, you have to be honest with your client. One of the, uh, I won't mention any names or circumstances, but I was in a jury trial not too long ago, and um, I believe that the lawyer on the other side all but guaranteed uh, uh, his client that they were going to win that case. What happened was the jury came in and uh, uh, tagged uh, tagged uh, the other side with a with a jury verdict uh, against her, and uh, three days later the lawyer was fired. And uh, I don't know whether the lawyer actually believed what he was saying or just hyping his client, but 
um, you have to be you you've got to be able to uh, talk straight to your client and have the client believe that you're being straight and honest. And the other uh, interesting aspect of this law profession, and I suppose it intersects with uh, your faith, belief, and your religious tenets. We hear about conservative judges, liberal judges, secular. How could that be when the law is supposed to be the law? That's a very interesting question. It's kind of the question of the day. And, you know, I have found uh, that uh, particularly, you know, I'm in conservative in my politics. Uh, and so I will tend to vote uh, that way. I mean, one of my litmus tests is it would be very difficult for me to vote for a politician who was uh, was not pro-life, because life, I think, is, you know, you know, the cornerstone of what, what, you know, our culture and society is about. And uh, from people from my perspective, where we will tend to rail against what we would call liberal activist judges. And then, but, you know, there's also, well, we don't want to admit it, but there are conservative activist judges. There was a time in our country where the conservative activists got control of the Supreme Court in the early ninth, uh, the early 19th, uh, well, I guess it would be the earliest 20th century in the 1915s, 20s, through the 30s, where Roosevelt even was wanting to pack the court. And what they did is they had a conservative political agenda, and they brought that to the court, and they uh, would uh, look at the Constitution from their conservative political lens. And I don't think there's any doubt that that beginning in the 50s, the Warren Court, that people were reading their own politics uh, and reading the Constitution accordingly. And um, from a philosophical standpoint, uh, back in law school, there's a called uh, a judicial realism. And what is judicial realism? Well, it's, uh, and then, uh, and it was actually explored in uh, Judge Thomas's confirmation hearing. He was a naturalist, uh, natural law. Uh, realism is, and it's an interesting question, is I'm driving down the freeway from Carbondale to, C, uh, to uh, Chicago. The speed limit is 65. But I know I can drive 70 all day, and a cop can see me driving 70, and I won't be pulled over. Now, what is the speed limit? Is it 65 or is it 70? Now, the natural law judge would say it's 65. The realist would say, no, it's 70. If you're not going to be pulled over at 70, then the actual speed limit is 70. Robert Bork uh, came up to be confirmed as a Supreme Court judge uh, and failed. And he wrote a book uh, about, and had an awful lot of influence in, in the legal system. And I hold the view that what the duty of the judge is, particularly at the Supreme Court level, is to go back and read the original document and whatever other literature, like the Federalist Papers and the like, and say, what is the policy, what is the values that are being promoted in the Constitution? And once you've identified that policy and then you apply the facts of the case to those policies and whatever 
if the, the constitutional policy that's being promoted is the one uh, that the judge should uh, follow. What about prayer in schools? That was abolished in the 60s in public school system. Why was that? Right. Should, it, should it be restored? Should we have prayer back in public schools? You know, the public schools didn't start in this country until it was in Massachusetts. It didn't start until uh, the first common school started in Massachusetts in the 1890s. Uh, and there were people that were warning about the dangers of that. From a constitutional standpoint, look, the, the uh, incorporation doctrine I talked about is settled law. I, I, it's just, you're not going to get, uh, I don't care how many uh, conservative Republicans are appointed to the Supreme Court. You're never going to get uh, go back to the days where they're going to unravel all mm. of that. Under the Trump administration, Secretary Foss, Education Secretary, has gone out to protect religious freedom and practices in the public school system as best that may operate under the laws and restrictions that are already there. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing for uh, the uh, uh, president of the state university uh, to say, look, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be mandatory chapel or something like that. Something completely different than uh, you have a uh, intervarsity on campus and they want to be a recognized uh, organization and be able to come and meet on campus and be pro-Christian to say, well, you can't do that because you're establishing religion. Completely different issue to, to the extent that uh, public universities are discriminating against uh, Christian speech. I think uh, that's uh, I applaud any any uh, administration for protecting those rights. Not just similar to uh, certain uh, uh, people that hold points of view uh, that want to come on campus and speak and. Uh, it's contrary. It, there tend to be, you know, Christian and uh, conservative and point of view. And so, well, we can't have these people speak, come and speak because of this issue or that issue or the other issue. I, I think that uh, when the Trump administration comes along and says, no, you want, you know, we're, we, uh, we don't, uh, we are against you and we, uh, uh having, content-based discrimination in terms of who's allowed to speak on campus. And the whole notion of Christian Bible groups in a public school is accepted by some school systems. Is that correct? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, uh, it's still, though, it's uh, it's those that uh, want to have uh, their children uh, attend uh, some Bible study that's not forced and it's part of a separate organization at some public school or uh, places it should be if there's other activities that are recognized then that should be something that be recognized as well now this is not to say and i don't think you're saying it, that christianity is not the only faith in america it's we've uh, the right. jewish traditions and we have sure. others right i mean you're not narrowing here's, it down here well we're going to Go quickly back to your book and then just wrap up on a few national topics. And when you talk about your own Christian faith and the importance to it in your life, are you a member of a denomination? How would you describe yourself? You know, I attend a church that would claim that it's non-denominational. But there's a lot of churches out there that would claim they're non-denominational. 
I can tell you what I believe, and uh, the uh, and I am free to express these views in my church. And we have an eldership form of government, and uh, and they uh, they encourage me. And where's your church based? In Southern Illinois? Yeah, it's in Carbondale, Illinois. It's a small church. Uh, I think there's all kinds of different views in Christianity, you know, going from gifts of the Spirit and baptism and uh, Calvinism and Armenianism and things like that. And I can fellowship with all of those people. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Let's talk about some national issues, Daryl. The the coronavirus shutdowns, quick comment on how you view that. Has it been overkill or just about the right approach by state governments and the Fed? And uh, the tragedy of George Floyd and the riots nationwide. I've I, I really got mixed emotions about the virus uh, because I do think it's um, more dangerous than a lot of people that share my point of view politically believe. Uh, I think ultimately we need to have, um, uh, ultimately the decision is going to have to be made by the population as a whole. Whether those in power really realize it, the only reason they have power in this culture is be by consent of the governed. Yeah, and when we get to uh, like, but but I do think that uh, I'm seeing increasing evidence that some of the politicians that have been uh, uh, coming up with these edicts and the like, they seem to get too much enjoyment, I suppose, out of their uh, ability to exert that kind of power. I was very disappointed about three weeks ago when Dr. Fauci testified uh, electronically to the Senate. And uh, I would have asked Dr. Fauci if I was a senator the following question. I would have said, look, Dr. Fauci, you have warned about reopening the government too fast, and if we do that, there might be uh, increased cause of death as a result of the virus. And uh, your models indicate that there might be you know, so many more thousands and thousands of people would die, and so you've warned the president to be very cautious about reopening the government. I get that. But I'd like to know, Dr. Fauci, how many people have become unemployed as a result of the virus? And have you made any assessment as to the health cost, just the health cost of our culture of having 30 million people unemployed? And if you haven't, made that assessment as to the cost of our health of not reopening our culture, then why is it that the president should be listening to you at all? There's been way too much emphasis in terms of me, in terms of the health costs of uh, reopening the uh, culture, the uh, economy, and very little has been spent assessing the cost of keeping it closed. Let's talk about the riots. A very sad time in America. We've been here before, the riots in the 60s and so on, but this is a little different, it seems. I am an NFL football fan. Uh, I've been a 49ers fan forever, and so I turn on the NFL network, and uh, for the last two days, the first hour has been spent listening to people uh, pontificate about the need for... uh, doing something about racial injustice in our culture and our society. 
the gamut has been something along the lines of there needs to be greater communication, more people need to speak out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I find it all very trite. And I try not to be very judgmental about it. What I hold the view, I think, is that if you want to get guidance about how to combat evil in uh, any culture, our culture in particular, and uh, there's no question that Racism, even in uh, what might be considered as kind of a benign form in terms of, well, this is what I think about other people, but I don't act on it. Because when you think, uh, when you've got judgmental attitudes about people based only on skin color or sex or whatever it might be, that's there's great danger in that, whether we want to admit it or not. The greatest person that ever lived that understands evil and had victory over evil was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as a Christian, I need to be listening to him and his guidance in terms of how to combat evil. As I said before, the Lord Jesus, basically, what he asked of us is not that difficult to understand it's much more difficult than the application and what he basically said is treat other people as you would be treated and i find it hard to believe that the police officer that was applying the weight to the man mr floyd's neck understood that principle it was such a shocking tragedy so sad and condemned by by anybody with any decent reasoning. And my point is, if that, if, if the police officer, if that was his son, if that was his brother, he never would have treated that man that way. Yet, for whatever reason, he had lost perspective and, um, and then we have other people out there and, and, and the officers that are standing and looking around. If he, uh, if that had been their son or their brother. They would have intervened. They would have intervened, but but it's you know it's not my family. I don't you know I'm not being injured by that, so I'm going to go ahead and and let do what has been done. Uh, then we got people out there that um, are um, taking advantage of that death for political motivations. Uh, we have people out there uh, taking advantage of the situation for just you know selfish motivations. I personally don't think that of all of the major issues that we have in our culture that racism is the most paramount uh, problem we've got i'm not saying that it's not a very serious problem but from my perspective i don't think it's the most paramount what is the most paramount problem well i don't you know i would say i'm personally uh, very concerned about uh, what seemed to be an anti uh, takeover and an effort to undermine trump's presidency by a cabal of people that weren't willing to uh, respect the election but that's my now, when you say takeover because we've heard this in recent days yeah. that some groups allegedly infiltrated the protests and were paid to infiltrate could be and financed yeah and here's what so I. so is that a way are you talking about an actual and people have used the word revolution are there are groups in america intent on a revolution bringing down trump 
and creating some utopia in their minds. I don't think it's that. Uh, I think it's uh, when it comes to Trump, I think that uh, there is a power structure there that he was not uh, he's not influenced by and he, uh, he, he makes fun of them and he derides them and so they feel like they got to get rid of them. But my point, my point is this: if I am saying, "Look, I'm not going to participate in uh, using and uh, in, in doing something about racism because I don't think it's the most important issue," right? Then I am, uh, you know, I'm not any better uh, from a moral standpoint, perhaps, than the uh, the officers that uh, you know were part of this man's death. It's, in other words, since my ox is not being gored, since uh, um, I'm not being personally uh, influenced by uh, what's happening because I'm not black, so I don't have to get myself involved. My point is is that evil is evil, and this is an opportunity uh, to, uh, as a Christian, to combat evil. You're in favor, I assume, of peaceful protest to get their point across, but this wanton violence is another matter. Do you think the country is at a crossroads? Is it coming apart? Will it heal? Where do you see things as we get closer to the election in November? The country has become completely more and more polarized. So that uh, when Trump ran in 2016, he said that he could... Uh, he could commit murder in a main street of uh, New York City uh, in front of the whole country, and he would still get 38% of the vote or whatever it was. And there's very few votes in the center now uh, that are up for grabs. There's uh, People are going to vote for Biden no matter what because uh, they hate Trump so much. Uh, and people are going to vote for Trump no matter what because they really have an intense dislike for uh, uh, for Hillary and for uh, Obama and what they stand for. And there's very few vote, votes in the center that are up for grabs, and it seems to be just getting that way more and more and more. Biden or Trump for the White House? I really don't know. You, uh, you look at the... The uh, recent national polls would say that Biden is ahead, but I think there's also evidence that there's a lot of people that are lying to the pollsters. These tend to be uh, Trump voters. And uh, in those key states, it's very possible that Trump might again lose the uh, popular vote, but he wins the electoral uh, electoral. Uh, let's quickly look uh, wrap up on your book. Is there another book coming from Daryl Donham? A follow-up, a sequel? And by the way, you have to sign the one I bought. So when I get to visit Carbon Day, you're going to sign it for me. Yeah, I will. <laughs> but the, I, the, if I write another book, let's put it this way. If I write more books, the last book I'm going to write is um, I'm going to take Barnabas. And, of course, we're giving away the ending. But he and Stephanie, uh, he comes to faith. And, and uh, they, too, you know, become united and. So we fast forward about uh, six or seven years, and they have children. And at the very start of the book, there uh, Stephanie and Barnabas are in the doctor's office, and uh, Barnabas has got a diagnosis of ALS. And a lot of people are turned off about this, and you know, just when I say that, when I mention this, it, 
turns him off. And he basically is told that he might have anywhere from a year to three years to live, but it's going to be a slow dying death. So the next uh, chapter is about a year and a half later, and Barnabas is now bedridden, and the only way he can communicate is by blinking his eyes. Ooh. Uh, and uh, he can't get out. He's uh, uh, he's on a you know ventilator much of the time, and it's just and he's he's become very bitter. You know, it's a very difficult circumstance for him to deal with, and and he's not able to go to church. And he uh, his Stephanie brings home sort of memories of his mother in that she was in an accident, as I recall, and bedridden more or less. Right. Well, she's in a wheelchair. A wheelchair. Not her death was not you know as bad as his Mm. from a you know worldly point of view. And so Stephanie brings back some CDs from the church services you know on Sunday morning and plays them in the afternoon. And the pastor is given a message about the Good Samaritan and says, "Look, you have to take advantage of the opportunities that the Lord gives you." And Barnabas kind of laughs himself, kind of a a black humor laugh. What opportunities? And the spirit, angel, I haven't decided yet, says, well, at least you can pray. At least you can pray. And he starts to develop a very rich prayer life. And Stephanie figures out what's going on. And so she starts bringing in to the home people that are in need of prayer. And that's what Barnabas does during uh, virtually all of his waking hours. He's praying praying and he's praying an intercessory prayer and so the following chapters are going to be the story of people that he's praying for because he's been praying for all these people and then the angel or the spirit comes and says it's time for you to come home and he doesn't want to go he says i've got too much to do i've been got these people i'm praying for and the angel says look you have to rely on the lord he'll make provision and the purpose of that book is to Deal with the philosophy that people feel like they are being defeated by their circumstances. And I hold the view, I don't care what your circumstances are, how bleak, how dire they are, you can always live your life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. What about the yoke? Is there a movie deal in the yoke? Has anybody said that to you? Could it be developed? Could a script be customized for the big screen? I've had people, uh, one person in particular, that would said that he would like to do that, but I, I haven't been approached by anybody that's actually got the mean, you know, has those kinds of contacts or, you know, those kinds of inroads to people that would be in a position to do that. Because it seems it would translate very well, and we know there's a market for Christian religious-themed movies, and they... They're successful. They have they have an audience. It's not a mass audience, but it's not an insignificant audience. So the yoke could be up on the big screen if it was done right and the resources were put behind it. I think that's right. I, 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 that's that's not my opinion. That's been the opinion of others. But well, we have to check know, back. I got an active practice. I'm going to be going to have a, a two week jury trial coming up in August if the court opens. I mean, <laughs> right, you won't have too much time to be concentrating on a movie deal, but let's hope it happens. Daryl, it has been a terrific pleasure talking to you for this episode, uh, Life on Planet Earth. Stay well and keep up all the good work and the writing and your law practice, and we'll get to see you when we make our visit to Carbondale, I hope, soon. 
You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.